Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. The way a chart works is planets are arrayed in a particular way in a symbol system, and that when we look at the chart, we can deduce from that how are these dynamic forces at play in the life and in the psyche of the person that we're talking to. So welcome everybody to the Story Paths podcast, and today I'm very glad to be speaking with my friend and mentor, Michael Geary. Uh, he is a fellow Bhakti Yoga practitioner, and he's also an astrologer with a deep knowledge of the meanings of astrology in regards to our personal development and our spiritual practice, and also the deep meanings of the teachings of Dharma and how we can apply those in our lives, our careers, and have an integrated, progressive, deepening practice that's beneficial for ourselves and others in the planet. There's many other ways I could speak about him. Um, he's, on a personal level, he helped me through a very difficult transition in my life when I was transitioning from being a monk in the temple out into the rest of the world. And he gave me a lot of insight as an insider in this bhakti yoga tradition and also somebody experienced in the world and in different spiritual paths. So I'm very glad to be talking with you today, Michael. Yes. Uh, well, thanks for having me, Theodore. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. Yeah, I was happy to play a small role and... Um, uh, yeah, just giving you a sounding board uh, for your own life direction, which way back then I remember moving from the life of a monk to the life of a creative person. And I remember distinctly you were interested in that and uh, that that's what we talked about, how to do that. And and I think one of the great things about what you're doing, you seem to have um, uh, been able to bring together the two things, you know, kind of a a strong spiritual environmental message, but also with certainly, uh, you know, uh, very obvious uh, spiritual uh, overtones to it. So uh, thanks for reminding me about that nice little pastime of ours. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, yeah, it was it was quite critical in the transition. I mean, I have to say my, my mind was in an absolute knot at the time. I didn't know how to untangle it. Um, you know, I'm not fully untangled now, <laughs> may never be, but you I was were... I say, that's a daily, that's a daily <laughs> for most of us. <laughs> that's a But you were <laughs> instrumental in getting me to a point where I could, I could think clearly about things and start to make decisions. And it's something I want to say for people listening about your work is with the astrology and with the life coaching... It was never, you know, here's what your astrology does, and therefore this is what you should do. It was all a question of helping me to understand my own situation. So, you know, some people might know astrology as being predictive or as kind of uh, typecasting us. Yeah. But my experience with you, with, with your astrology and with your life coaching, was that it was more like it helped me understand the cards that I have in this life what I'm working with in terms of my own nature and my opportunities, and then 
you know, empowering me to be a mature person and think for myself, given the situation, and make my own decisions, you know, as best I can. I'd like to really invite you to, to speak about your work and, and describe it. If it. It's a lay audience, so they won't know. I mean, probably most people, I don't know much about astrology, but in terms of the kind of concepts and how you're helping people and you could describe your work. I thought you might want to talk about it. And so I thought about the subject, but also especially how it relates to the topic of today, which as far as I understand, you're interested in the dynamics of storytelling. Um, so, you know, my experience is that everybody loves a story. Um, and there's a reason for that, which is much as I've been able to find out, it's because everyone's got one. Um, and each one of us has a unique story to tell. Uh, you know, there's a common understanding that I think there are, you know, six or seven main plot lines, storylines that you can lay out a good story by. Um, and those six or seven conditions are the kinds of things that we encounter, uh, generally speaking, as, as human beings. So, you know, um, I remember when I first moved to London <clears throat> uh, and I found myself in uh in, in the company of the great and the good and everybody interested to talk with me about them. And, uh, that was always the topic. Um, I might go to uh, a fancy party and, uh, I become very popular, not for any particular reason, um, <laughs> you know, about my personality, uh, but because people knew that I was interested to talk about them. Um, and what the astrology did was it gave me a really uh, very useful tool in that. And um, how that relates to storytelling, I think, is very useful. Uh, as an example, um, I one time thought that the kind of work that I was doing was um, it, 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 it could be parlayed into uh, writing a very personal uh, custom fairy tales for people. Hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is that our, uh, astrology works on uh, the use of archetypes. So psychological archetypes or universal or cosmic archetypes. And for <clears throat> the uh, listeners who don't know what an archetype is, um, uh, there are different ways of thinking about it. There's the platonic way of thinking about it, that there are original forms from which all other forms derive uh, Jung talked about uh, archetypes as being uh, dynamic psychic forces that exist within all of us. Um, so, for instance, you know, everybody has a father and, of course, everybody has a mother um, and everyone has friends. And unfortunately, some of us uh, in life, we find that we have detractors and sometimes uh uh, challengers or even enemies. Um, so these big uh, kind of figures in life, you could say, are the archetypes. And the way a chart works is um, the planets are arrayed in a particular way uh, in a symbol system. Uh, and that when we look at the chart, we can deduce from that. Um, what are how are these dynamic forces at play? in the life and in the psyche of the person that we're talking to. So um, each one of these forces represent uh, potentiality. Um, so again, you know, we have the father figure. So we have uh, the authoritative figure who might be benign and very loving and help us grow. Or perhaps the father figure is, a little bit uh, domineering or overpowering or, or whatever. And depending on the condition of each one of these archetypes, there is going to be a, a, a result, a, an experience in the person's life. So there are certain conditions in everyone's story um, that are kind of given to us. You know, they're kind of laid out. Life has a way of happening to us. Um, I think, who is it, John Lennon, who said that, you know, Life is what happens to you as you're busy making plans. Um, and, you know, we, we're all born into a certain uh, state of being, certain family, certain society, uh, rich or poor, 
uh, healthy or not. Um, and we have to deal with that. But then the question becomes not, well, what is that? But who am I? And what are my choices in dealing with that? So each one of us has different sets of circumstances, but each one of those circumstances are different opportunities for us to make powerful choices in, in how we deal with it. So in that sense, I never really work with people in a way that, I mean, hopefully anyway, in, in a way where they feel that, well, you know, that they are fated to have to deal with a, a particular challenge or obstacle, because my goal in this is to always seek to empower the individual to find the to find the most useful ways of navigating through the challenges that they have in their life, not just the challenges, but of course, how can they uh, maximize um, the opportunities that, that are there as well for them? So that's kind of a that's kind of like a little sketch. I mean, you know, we could go more deeply into the into the topic, but um, uh, you know, to kind of keep it top level, uh, that that's how it works. And um, and it's fascinating. I mean, when you talk about storytelling, um, I often tell people they say, well, you know, you know, how did you get into this and and, um, and uh, why do you keep doing it? And I've been doing it for about 35 years now. Um, and, you know, how I got into it was I started life out in my early years as, as an artist. I, I became uh, I was a product of the 60s and became a Hare Krishna monk very early on in my life. I was. I was 17 years old and I was in India at the time and I'm walking along and I just happened by fate, of course, to uh, bump into an astrologer who doesn't know me from Adam, um, but who uh, is able to tell me all kinds of things about myself and my family and where I'm from and my potential and all this kind of stuff. And I, I was pretty flabbergasted by the idea. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, can anybody can anybody learn this? And. Yeah, he said yes, and uh, and you will. And so, uh, you know, I had, I had he, he was like a signpost for me. Yeah, go go this way, and and see what it's all about. So it was a long it was a long pathway of development. So, you know that 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 that's a little bit my story. But what really attracted me to um, uh, the story of an astrological chart is that um, every time I look at a chart, it's like opening a novel. Because everyone's story is completely different. Everyone is configured in a completely different way. And, you know, people say, well, you know, I mean, yeah, we have the same sun sign. And, you know, I mean, astrology truly is a lot more complex than that. There are literally tens or hundreds of thousands of factors to consider in analyzing a chart thoroughly. So it's not that, you know, it's not that one size fits all. Um, that's like roughly the equivalent of saying, well, if you're living in Canada, Everyone who's Canadian has the same temperament, whereas if you're living in England, everyone has the same temperament here. And while we might find commonalities, most of the time we're going to be finding exceptions to the commonality. So, you know, what I that I think is the most captivating thing for me. It's, you know, I get to do charts and people walk in and I don't know them and meeting them, you know, right from, let's say, scratch. They just kind of contact me either through a referral or they come to my website or whatever it is. And um, I look at the chart and I'm able to talk about them. I'm able to tell them their story. They don't have to tell me their story. I tell them their story. <laughs> and I wonder if you could, uh, if you could demystify astrology a bit, because of course there's a lot of stereotypes about astrology. It's arcane knowledge and, all the houses and the planets, and it sounds, it's very uh, complex and kind of mystical. And I wonder if you could kind of bring that down to earth and in terms of, like you say, when you're, when you look at a person's chart and you're speaking with them, what's that, what's that like to, with, without getting into technicality so much, but what's, how do you enter into an understanding of that person through astrology? Okay, well, let me let me try to break that down in as simple way as I can. Um, uh, yes, astrology is an ancient art or based on a science of the placement of the planets. Originally, the original scientists in the world were the astrologers um, and the alchemists, and, and and so it has this, 
you know, kind of um, romantic, legendary uh, history to it. Um, but for the modern person, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And certainly when you read um, newspaper horoscopes, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of those. Um, I don't know if you know the story of how they were created, but when I believe it was Princess Margaret, when when she was born, one astrologer named Nader, um, who was working, I believe, for the Sunday Express at the time, um, he wrote an article about her and what was going to happen in her life and so on and so on. And the following Monday, uh, the editor of the Sunday Express uh, received a huge sack full of posts uh, asking, you know, which were nothing but requests saying, I, I want mine done. Uh-huh. I want my story to be told. And uh, and so he went in and he said to Nader, you know, can we do this? And he said, no, it's not. It's not possible. It's impossible. He said, well, then you're fired. Well, I don't know if that's exactly what he said. But he, anyway, Nader was coerced into coming up with a way that you can predict something about a person on the basis of their date of birth, you know, the mm-hmm. month of their and the only planet is which is consistently in the same place, you know, in monthly periods is the sun. And hence, that was the, you know, I, I believe it was 1932 or something that was the birth of sun sign astrology. Uh, so it's a kind of simplification of this complex system with many planets and many influences uh, so as to be able to address many people without doing one-on-one consultations without doing one-on-one consultations and of course you know in dumbing it down like that you well you dumb it down you know you oversimplify it um and then it doesn't really do the job that it's intended to do Mm -hmm. so um i won't go into explaining how it works in detail but it's um i call it a it's a lang it's an algebraic language and just like in algebra, you have different letters that can, depending on their juxtaposition in the equation, um, um, they can represent certain values. So the planets, the signs, the houses, the lunar mansions or the 27 constellations, um, the different um, uh, the different charts, the divisional charts that we use, so many different things, um, they they are the composite alphabet of the of the system and we look at a chart and we say well how is this how is this equation written out and then with that then we can begin to deduce by plugging in um at least let's say theoretical values um you know what uh what what the likely outcome is and i say theoretical but it's not really theoretical in the sense that the ancient sages of India were very, very uh, prescriptive about rules, very strict rules that have to be followed in interpretation. Hmm. Uh, so they, in other words, they laid down the rules of grammar. Um, and, you know, you can say, well, I'm going to speak French and I'm going to plug in Latin words and English words and German words. And, you know, but a normal Frenchman wouldn't really acknowledge that you're speaking French even though you might use French language. So in the same way, you know, when we when we divert from the rules that are laid out by the sages of India in regard to Vedic astrology, astrology from India, you know, then we run the risk of of making errors where we stick closely to those rules. Then we have every chance of, you know, becoming reasonably accurate in our assessment. And if you will, excuse me. Uh, prediction of of likely outcomes. So anyway, that's just it. You know, that's just a kind of a really simple way of describing what the system is. So what happens when I what happens when I meet with meet somebody? Um, well, the first thing I do is I make a chart of the moment. And so a chart of the moment is a chart that is a conceptual chart of a theoretical baby being born in my office at that time, and that baby would have that chart. So from that chart, I can see uh, through the symbol system, the algebraic symbol system, um, the major factors or influences that brought the person to see me. 
And I can then I then read the chart and I say, well, it looks like you want to talk about this and this and this and this. And they say, yes, that's why I came here. Say, okay, then let's talk about it. And we then go in and look at their chart. So that's a little bit about the experience. So I don't, you know, it, it, in other words, I kind of demonstrate that I know what I'm talking about, which creates a little bit of confidence in the person, helps break the ice. They feel more comfortable um, looking more deeply into their charts. And then I begin to systematically uh, describe their chart. So in doing that, I follow the logical and analytical structure of the algebraic system that the sages of India gave us. And yet I also use, of course, my non-rational form of reflection. What do I mean by that? You could call it intuition. Uh, you could call it uh, different ways of knowing. Um, you know, we have our rational mind and our rational mind is kind of a left brain um function uh, and the left brain is not a creative part of us. It's it's the part of us that knows what it knows. It's the part of us that has taken previous experience and categorized it and stored it into various kind of uh, kind of groupings and, and, and like a data structure. Um, so the left brain doesn't know anything new. It learns new things, but it's not it's not a part of us that can create new things. Right. The right brain, the right brain part of us is the creative part. And, and um, uh, you, Theodore, as a as a creative person, you know, this you know, this part of you that when you're being really creative and you go into a deep creative state, you get into what's called an alpha state, which is a non-rational state, which is where you're kind of you're conscious, you're open, you're receiving subtle inputs around you. And inspiration comes. And that's, of course, what the Greeks talked about when they said that they wanted to commune with the muses. Well, that's an interesting point as well, because uh, we say creativity, but for some time I've kind of thought it's not quite the right word because it's more like receptivity. <laughs> because, you know, we're not creating anything new, but it's more like being open to what's what's meant to come through at this time. Yeah, the two thoughts that come to my mind, I think that's really, really good insight. I mean, um, I think we are in a process. We're in a kind of a micro process of creative function. Right. So for us, it's a creative experience. Um, but, you know, as the old saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. And as Picasso said, you know, you can steal from anybody but yourself. In other words, you can repeat <laughs> you know, you can take from other artists and do whatever you want with it, but you can't repeat what you have previously done. Mm. Perhaps a kind of sub-creation. It's like a sub-creation. But, but again, but again, that's the point you're, you're talking about, that in a sense, when we create as creative people, and this is kind of the beauty, the rapture, if you will, or the ecstasy of being a creative person, it's like you do commune with something godly in yourself. Or a godly in nature, however you want to describe it, you feel an invisible hand that comes through. I mean, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book now, and um, and sometimes I'm writing it at the end of the day, and I think, oh my God, what was that? Is anybody going to really like it or read? But then I'll read it to somebody and think, oh, that's really good, and I'll reread it and I'll go, oh, I didn't really write that, did I? It's just where did that come from? That's way better than. What I than what I thought it was capable of. <laughs> and so, yeah, sometimes it comes alive sharing it with somebody, doesn't it? It becomes alive sharing. I mean, you know, and that's, of course, the whole creative process. The whole creative process is, is about connectivity. You could say the creative process is about yoga, which means union, which means to link up, which means, you know, I want to connect with God through the creative process and I want to connect some of that divinity, if you will, through my creative process out to other people. And that doesn't mean that you have to even necessarily be, um, you know, <clears throat> a theist. Um, so you don't have to be a Theo or a Theodore. Uh, you could be a humanist, uh, you know, but still there's some kind of magical stuff that happens in that creative process. And you want to share that.
And I just want to put in there as well that everyone is a creative person. It's something we're born with, isn't it? That uh, however we apply it or however we, you know, have confidence in ourselves or in our receptivity, it's a c capacity we all have. Because uh, there's a kind of stereotype of oh, some people are artistic, some people are creative, some people are... Of course, we have strengths and weaknesses or challenges, but it is something we're all born with, isn't it? Well, I mean, um, all you have to do is look at a child, any child, give give the child a piece of paper and a, and a pen, pencil or a crayon, and, you know, really beautiful and wonderful things come out. And, you know, Picasso, uh, again, said, you know, he spent his... He said, I was capable of painting like Raphael when I was 12. He said, but I've spent my whole life trying to learn how to paint like a child again. So everybody is creative. And, you know, to, to really understand how deep that goes, if you look at an astrological chart, there are 12 houses that symbolize uh, 12 distinct areas of life experience. You could call them portfolios of life experience. Each one very, very different. So the first house is about your identity, your character, the mask you wear to the world, your reputation, how people know you, how you like to present yourself, your physical body, and so on. Um, your fourth house is your mother and your mind and your education and your emotions and the place that you live. So each house has a wide range of algebraic symbolic possibilities. The fifth house is distinctly related to creation. It's related to procreation. So the fifth house relates to children. So, if, you know, you say, well, everyone's creative. Well, yeah, a lot of people want to have kids, you know. Um, so that's an obvious way in which people are creative. But, you know, everyone does have a creative drive in them. Um, everyone does have a story to tell. Um, as they say, everybody has a book in them. Um, but there are other ways in which that creativity can come out. Like you said, you know, it can come out in 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 social work and in, in how we deal creatively with other people. It can come out um, in terms of our scientific work when we're in the laboratory and we're, you know, having eureka moments and we're maybe discovering new ways of doing things that other people haven't discovered before highly creative situation there, you know, and, you know, you could go on endlessly. And why? Because everyone has a fifth house right. in their astrological chart, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it's not like, oh, you're sorry, you're born with no fifth house. So you don't, <laughs> you're, you don't have any creativity. You might not have, you might not have a pronounced fifth house. You know, you might have um, a chart which shows that you're, you know, a rational, scientific, analytical person. Uh, you tend not to kind of move in that creative space. And fair enough. That's your that's your life. That's who you are. And, and we respect that. Um, but still, even if you are like that, still, you'll find that there's some element of creative process in you. Maybe it's you in the kitchen. You know, I, I, I like to cook or it's maybe you in the garden, you know. A counterpoint is also somebody might say, well, you know, I'm I'm all right brain. Uh, it's hard for me to structure things and I just go with the flow and I, ideas that come to me. But that person will also have some left brain, you know, capacity or to put it in the sort of wider metaphor of the of the many houses, 12 houses, did you say? Yeah, that's right. So rather than just left and right, you've got the 12 houses, which really expands things. Um, then, you know, somebody might be mainly r residing or focusing on one house or, you know, a few houses, aspects of themselves, but it's not that they don't exist in the more reasonable ones, or the reason-based ones and so on. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that um, there's, I mean, nobody is all of anything, meaning, you know, we have, predominant characteristics maybe so we might be a very outspoken um outgoing uh alpha type whatever um and we might not be that we might be something very much um the opposite of that we might be shy 
and reserved. To use your example, if I'm a largely right brain oriented, creative, spontaneous, uh, mystical person, um, you know, I still need my left brain to figure out how to buy an air ticket to go to Peru to engage in a shamanic, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> experience, you know. Um, so, you know, we, we, we need both sides of our brain. And there's a really good book for your listeners, if if they have an interest in it, that I got a lot out of it was a guy named Ian McGilchrist. He's an amazing erudite professor who um, uh, writes on um, uh, the brain and the functions of the brain. And the book is called His Master and uh, the Master and His Emissary. And it's about how um, the left, the right brain is really meant to be the master. And the left brain is meant to be the emissary. Uh, and the right brain is the creative function, the drive, the open mindedness that we take with us into the world around us and to have wonderful experiences. The left brain is the emissary who writes it all down, you know, takes all of the information in, categorizes it, stores it and has it as reference for us so we can know how to navigate the uncertainties of the world. I'm grossly, grossly oversimplifying the book, by the way, but that's essentially um, one aspect of the, one of many, many aspects of the book. Uh, yeah, I, it also makes me think that, you know, the right brain has a holistic view of things, and then the left brain is about carrying things out. And, you know, we might say that some of the problems we have in our modern world with ecological crisis and so on is that the our, our capacity for reductionism and for separating things and identifying things and focusing on aspects of things has not been really in service to a holistic understanding of how all those things fit together. And so we've gotten you know, hyper good at super uh, hyper good at certain types of technologies without seeing that the creation and the use of those technologies is damaging to the whole, uh, you know, and so many, so many examples like that. Well, actually, I'd like to bring it back to astrology in this way that I've heard with astrology, it's a criticism sometimes leveled at astrology. Oh, it's not, it's not a science because there is an aspect of intuition from the person reading it that is important uh, to the reading. But I, what you're speaking about is, it makes me think, well, yeah, of course there is, because that's, that's part of it. That's an important part <laughs> well, of it, I mean, is the reader. I'm sorry, sorry, but, you know, I mean, I can't resist a good, a good you know, jab at that. I mean, that's kind of a ridiculous statement. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's a ridiculous statement. And in the sense that I so that means that you're telling me that scientists don't use their intuition. Mm. I mean, that, you know, um, this is really the conundrum that science really hasn't yet solved. What is consciousness? And, you know, if you want to look at that and look at, um, you know, the, the complexities of that, you know, a really good book I've come across lately is um, by a professor named David Bentley Hart. And it's, it's called The God Experience, uh, being, um, being Consciousness and Bliss. Um, and, you know, there he talks about, you know, the kind of fallacy of uh, not just um, – uh, you know, the idea that science has a kind of an absolutism, he, he kind of points it out that it's not, instead of science, we now have scientism. And science has become a kind of a, a priestly um, established class um, that, you know, if you're one of the if you speak the if you speak the, the language of vernacular, you can be part of the club. But if you don't, if you happen to find yourself on the out, then, you know, a kind of a. a uh, a kind of a fealty, <laughs> an obeisance is expected of you to kind of nod in the direction of science and just accept it as face value. But, you know, but my, I guess I'm sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but the point I'm making really is that 
any scientist who says that they're not using intuition or insight, which is coming from somewhere, somehow in their work, I, I don't know. I would really want to, I certainly wouldn't want to, you know, work with them. They would be not very exciting to work with. Yeah. I, I, I want to put something out there in terms of story. And then uh, I'd like to come and ask you about the relationship between astrology and life coaching. Uh, yeah. But in, in regards to science and religion, it's something struck me a while ago. I even thought of maybe I'll do a goofy graphic novel about it. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that at least in in the West, we're really talking, you know, in Europe and European culture, the diaspora, that science, that religion. It strikes me that the church has been and is still to a lesser extent has been you're very dominating very very much telling everybody this is what you need to believe and punishing people who don't believe it uh this is the truth that's you know if if somebody's coming and saying well actually the earth we're thinking might revolve around the sun well then we're going to put them to trial anything that's not in line with the dogma of the church is fully opposed. And so then science, Western science, came out of that uh, relationship with spirituality or with religion. Yeah. So it was very much persecuted from, from an early age. And then, lo and behold, over time, science is doing the same thing and persecuting anybody who's supposedly non-rational or you know, can't prove it in this certain way or isn't speaking the same language, like you say. And then in terms of stories, it really strikes me, if we were to personify that Western religion and Western science, what might we have? Probably an overbearing father, a kind of patriarchal father who's, this is how it is in my house, you know, and I won't tolerate any deviation from this. And then a rebellious son who rebels against it and then becomes older and, oh, becomes just like his father. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it happens to most of us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but in a different yeah. way, in a different arena. So he's not able to recognize it. Well, I'm not even religious. How can you say I'm like my father? Well, actually, you're doing the same things. You're being so dogmatic about the truth. And well, I think I think it's really it's a really good insight. Um, and and I suspect that a lot of other people out there share it with you. Um, you know, scientists have they are byproducts of the same prejudice and bias same bias and prejudice uh, of the of the culture that they come from so of course they're going to take those uh biases and prejudices and just uh reformat them uh to serve whatever you know they're aiming for what the prevailing uh, cultural orientation for them is so I think that, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that cultural conditioning plays a big role in the outcome. And, you know, if you want to get biblical about it, you know, that's one of the interesting quotes in the Bible. It says that the, you know, the sins of the father are committed to seven generations. And, you know, and that sounds like a really, you know, kind of like, oh, wow. You know, that means, you know, everybody's got to suffer because of what dad did. Um that's not really what it's saying. It's it's basically saying that, you know, that, that the um, uh, whatever neurosis or whatever pathology is there, that the psyche of the person, it's that's brought into the into the offspring and the offspring then have to work through it. And that, you know, I mean, I don't know how they got seven generations, but I could easily imagine that it probably takes seven generations to work it out. So, you know, the idea that. And if you then take that and say, well, what would it look like in an astrological, um, you know, configuration? Yeah, it would it would basically represent uh, a sun figure. Um, sun means solar sun um, who is very dominant and paternalistic. But it might also be interestingly um, in astrological terms for your listeners who are aware of this, uh, it might be where the sun is actually in the weakest place in the zodiac, which would be uh, in Libra. Um, the sun is a central, most important planet in our solar system, hence the word solar system. 
Um, and, you know, the nature of the sun is he likes to shine. He likes to be the center of attention. He's the brightest, uh, the brightest planet that there is for us. And, um, you know, in Libra, um, he has to find the middle ground. He has to find the, um, the balanced way of being. Um, and he's not really happy there. And what you find then in charts that have that, they could sometimes experience, um, fathers or authority figures that overcompensate for a sense of a lack of, um, a lack of uh, power that they might have. You know, so like if I feel weak in myself, what I might do is say, well, I'm going to be really bold in the way I express myself. Um, and, you know, so it plays out in a lot of different ways, but I could see how your idea does apply. You know, we could certainly map it astrologically, at least a as a concept. Hmm. That's interesting. So I I'd like to bring it to the astrology and life coaching. And I feel mm -hmm. like you've given a good sense, like I've got a better sense, you know, without, you know, knowing all the planets and, and getting into it. Of course, for people who want to do that, it's very interesting. Um, but I feel like I've got a sense of this kind of map of humanity, of, of consciousness, uh, a kind of symbol map, in a sense, that's also not only symbolic and psychological, but also related with the cosmos and uh, the world that we're in, and that we're all akin to each other, and yet we're all placed differently on this map. You know, we have different kind of emphasis and a different way that things play out with us individually. And some of that we're inheriting from our forefathers and our foremothers, uh, and some of it we may be getting from previous lives or from mm -hmm. the culture we're born into. Uh, but it gives a sense, like uh, the astrology, it sounds like it gives a sense of, so here I am, <laughs> you know, right. you know, inside, internally and externally, like here I am. And then maybe we can segue a bit into the life coaching and sure. how, how you help people work with what they have. I mean, it sounds like yeah. when we're talking about seven generations and, you know, they're not sudden miracles. It's not like, oh, we have a problem. Now we have a solution. You know, it's probably <laughs> anybody who's promising that is selling snake oil, right? But I, would you, think so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are deep things, right? I think that I think I think they are deep. Let me lay out a little context. Um, what I in, in one of the books I wrote, which I believe is now out of print, uh, it's called Moon Astrology for Lovers. Um, and that's a title that my publisher wanted to give it uh, for obvious reasons, uh, marketing reasons. Um I, I tried to make it a more uh, serious sound, serious book than the title might indicate. And my approach to it was to explain that each one of us um, has an emotional language unique to us. Um, and that can be that is symbolized by the nature of the moon in our chart and the placement of the moon in our chart. The moon represents our mind and our emotions. And depending on what sign it's in uh, and what constellation it's in, it's going to express itself very, very differently. So, for instance, to be really, really simple about it, let's say that I have my moon in Leo, which means uh, I like to shine. I like to be important. I like to have I like to play the role of being the center of attention. I like people's respect. I expect respect. Um, I can be very generous. I can be very magnanimous and, and so on and so on. Um, if my moon is in Pisces, um, I'm going to be very introverted, generally speaking. I'm going to be very uh, intuitive, uh, perhaps maybe even soft spoken, uh, very uh, reflective within myself uh, and so on. So I'm not going to be as outgoing as a moon in Leo. So if you put a, a person who has a moon in Pisces with a moon in Leo, they are apparently the, the question is, well, are they going to get along? Are they going to speak each other's emotional language? And this is um, this is just a theoretical question. And the answer to which is that, well, really, the answer is yes, if they understand each other's language. 
you know, if I if I understand who you are uh, and how you tick, I can relate with you in a way appropriate to your language and your understanding and your perception of the world. Instead of seeking to impose my um, view on you, I look to see what is your view. And you you and I share um, a really, um, you know, exalted uh, spiritual master, um, uh, Bhaktivedanta Narayan Maharaj, in our lives. And, and he said the, the same thing. He said, you know, don't try to impose your views on other people. Let's seek to understand theirs. And, you know, Stephen Covey says the same thing. First, seek to understand and then seek to be understood. So if we have a way of, let's say, even if we just have a general sense of how a chart is laid out energetically and what kind of person we're dealing with, then we can aim to speak their language just as much as, you know, we would do if, uh, if I'm in France, I really have to struggle with my pigeon France, French. And, and then of course the French turn their nose up to it. But, you know, I mean, it's a little bit better than just speaking English, you know, so you try, you know, and, and in trying and in exchanging, you learn as you go. So that's a kind of a reference point. That's how astrology can inform life coaching. When it comes to life coaching, I'm not really interested to change anybody. I want everybody to become more of who they are. I want them, I want them first to understand who they are and then to get to a place of self-acceptance. Oh, I'm like that. Oh, it's okay for me to be like that. Let me give you an example. Um, I had a yoga teacher who came to me a couple of weeks back, and uh, she used to be a uh, uh, a, a person working uh, in uh, law enforcement. And she became a yoga teacher, which is a pretty cool shift in my opinion. But in becoming a yoga teacher, um, she found that um, she didn't feel up to the the task of starting her own business because a yoga teacher is a kind of a self-employed person for the most part who has to build up their following and establish, you know, a kind of a reputation, and then after some time, then they're on their way, and they can make and make a, a halfway decent living out of it. But she was having a really hard time in beating herself up. Her moon was in Virgo, so very self-critical, and she was really criticizing herself in a really kind of intense kind of way. Oh, you're not getting out there. You're not doing the business um, stuff that you need to do to get your yoga practice off the ground, bad girl, bad girl, bad girl. So I looked at the chart and said, well, why do you want to be a businesswoman? You're clearly not a businesswoman. And she was like, no, I'm not a businesswoman. I said, okay, you said it yourself. You're not a businesswoman. So if you're not a businesswoman, why are you worried about establishing a business? What you need to do is find a place that you can practice your teaching but maybe under the umbrella or auspices of a larger organization that can give you a salary for doing what you do. And she was, she was in tears at the end of the conversation. She said, I I'm so relieved you've let, you've taken this big weight off my shoulders. And you know, it's really surprising. Each one of us has these kinds of things happen in our lives, isn't it? Like we're walking around with this kind of mental orientation. We think we should be doing one thing, and it's not who we really are. Well, I remember a similar moment uh, with you when you were doing life coaching with me. And I was saying, you know, I'm deliberating on this decision of whether to be, you know, a monk or an artist, basically. And I'm yeah. going back and forth. And I'm when I'm in monk, when I'm thinking a monk is the way to go, I'm 100% invested in it. And I think that's, you know, who I am. And then I switch out of that and I go to artist and I'm like, yes, that's it. That's it. And then I go back and forth and I'm. I'm, you know, it's, a, it's it's tiring. And, you know, how can I not do this? And then you said, well, maybe that's just how you make decisions. <laughs> and it was also kind of a paradigm shift. It's like, actually, that's not a bad way to make decisions. You kind of live one part and then live the other part. And then instead of just having it intellectual at, at arm's reach, 
uh, maybe I'll do this, maybe I'll do that, then you kind of live each part. And it's kind of how I do things. And, you know, I still have this, the monk and the artist, both alive and well with me. And they don't always really get along, but uh, I, I was thinking even just yesterday, like, oh yeah, maybe I just need to accept that this is this is how I am. And you know, it's still there's some some struggle and dynamic struggle and and that, but I'm not using as much energy trying to not be who I am. I mean, that was that's like most of the suffering and the energy is going to that actually, and then after that acceptance, it becomes easier. One of the things that um, kind of is a motto for me is, you know, stop the pain, stop the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, many of us are at war with ourselves. We think we should be one thing, but, you know, actually, well, we're not really that thing. Or maybe that thing that we think we are is only a part of us. And then there's another part of us that's very, very different from that part. And so the trick in that sense, just like, you know, okay, I have a monk and, you know, you say, you know, I'm a hundred percent monk. Well, you know, you can't do monk unless you're a hundred percent, right? You know, <laughs> monk is requires hundred percent, but artist also requires hundred percent. Leonardo da Vinci said, you know, that, you know, if you take your art seriously, don't get married, you know? And the reason he said that was because really dedicating yourself to your art. It's really all about, just your art. Your art is your wife. Now, that doesn't apply to very many normal mortals. But I mean, of course, if you're Leonardo da Vinci, it applies to you. Mm-hmm. My point is, is that you have these this dichotomy, this um, these different parts of you. And it's not about either or it's about both. It's about looking at both and saying both have a role. And sometimes one will play a more predominant role and the other will play an, a, a lesser role and vice versa. But they all have a role to play. And, and that's may, what and that's what makes you an interesting human being. Right. And they may play into each other as well, isn't it? Like, I don't Correct. know if I fully agree with Da Vinci on that, because if you're just an artist and you're not in other parts of life, your art may reflect that kind of limitation. You know, a person who who is married and who is in other parts of life and doing art may have a more human relational flavor to their art uh, than Da Vinci did. I never had that that problem. I mean, in terms of my own self acceptance, um, I'm as much challenged as anybody, but um, I've never had that problem of accepting myself that you know, uh, as a creative person. I need to have a marriage. <laughs> I need to have a relationship. You know, that's a part of it's part of the experience for me. So, you know, and again, it's it's how do we stop that war? How do we stop the pain? Well, self-acceptance is really important. And that self-acceptance can only come through self-awareness, through self-knowledge. And that's what I think I tend to do uh, for a people out in the world in terms of my life coaching, it's help giving them um, an objective voice to who they are. Sometimes I'll tell them um, in talking to me that they're going to be talking to a talking mirror and I'm just going to be reflecting back to them who they are. Many times I'm going to be reflecting back to them what they know already about themselves, but are not really looking at And once you do that and, you know, and people tend to hear it from an outside source, oh, that's how you are. And they go, yeah, that is how I am. Oh, it's okay to be how I am. I I don't have to try not to be what I am. And there's a huge amount of um, uh, psychic energetic gain when that happens. Well, it's like even pouring a bunch of resources into a hole in the ground. Uh, and then you're like, wait, I don't need to do this. <laughs> Correct. Correct. You know, yeah. yeah I, okay. I don't need to squander my vital psychic energy being at war with myself. I could be a monk and an artist, you know, or if you're a mom, you know, I could be a mom and a businesswoman. I, you know, it's hard work. You know, uh, but I can do it if I really want it. If I really, really want it, I can do it. If I don't want it, then I should just do whatever, whatever I really want to do. And that's 
And that's just the key to life, really. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, coming to story, I mean, we've been on story, but, you know, coming back to story in a sense is, that's the character in the story, right? I mean, if our life is a story, then knowing who the main character is, uh, is really important. And a lot of decisions the character makes will be based on their understanding of themselves. One of the, one of the great, I think that's a wonderful way to say it. And, you know, to take that just a step further, you know, one of the things that uh, I've taken a lot of inspiration from is uh, Joseph Campbell's work and his uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. So, you know, um, the, um, you know, that story of, of the hero with a thousand faces um, is, is really about the archetypal journey um, of uh, each one of us um, in, in terms of our, let, let's call it our becoming, who, who we are, what do we have to do uh, to become, um, uh, let's say, you know, our full self, the best that we can be. Um, and there are different stages on that uh, hero's journey. So, it, it, you know, usually uh, the hero is just um, kind of content, living on their own, living in a happy place. Um, everything's kind of maybe not perfect, but it's comfortable. And then all of a sudden along comes a threat or a challenge, and a lot of times that challenge can be external to us, you know. But it might also have an internal psychological component to it, and it might also have a philosophical component to it as well, right? So that challenge knocks us off our, uh, you know, out of our out of our comfortable place, and then we have to find an answer to that. So we go into a state of crisis, and we begin to look for answers and then we encounter, uh, you know, somebody who is a wise person who can give us advice, give us a plan of action. And then we have to go and implement that plan of action to find ourselves and discover solutions to our lives. So, I mean, I'm just kind of laying this out as the idea that each one of us is the protagonist of our own story. And that's why I said earlier, um, you know, everyone has a story and that's why everybody likes stories because they read themselves into the other stories that we hear about other people. You know, when you go to a movie and you're in the movies really engaging, you become one of the characters in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I just like to add also that, uh, with that deficiency, like in that first stage of the story, the hero is in a kind of status quo of some kind uh, mm -hmm. a stable position, but something knocks him out of that. And it's often that after going through the whole story and coming again to some sort of stability, you can look back and see actually there was a deficiency in that status quo. Like often the person is is dissatisfied in some way, but maybe not dissatisfied enough to act on it. But it's, you know... It's like life might be unfulfilling. They're not really living the life they could live. But, you know, kind of complacent, go on with it. But then some circumstance comes to knock me out of that. Like, internally, it might be that it just becomes so dissatisfying that I need to do something about it. Or externally, something comes to push me into a change. And then, in addition to, you know, avoiding death and <laughs> all the other things that, that happen in the story... I'll be coming to some deepening of my understanding of myself and my life and my relations of my spirituality, uh, that all those trials and tribulations were, were necessary. Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think you're, you're, you're speaking as, as a, as a master storyteller. Um, and, and, okay. Okay. As a storyteller, you know, you're, you're, you're somebody at least who understands, um, the components of a story, and it you know it brings up uh, you know <clears throat> if I can uh, quote uh, a small quote from the book that I'm writing, um, it's just referencing the writing of another person, not my writing, uh, but it's really really beautiful. It's by a guy named A. H. Almas, um, a philosopher, 
and he writes the following. And this is in regard to the, the challenges that the the hero that you're talking about or the protagonist of anyone's story runs into on a regular basis in life, by the way, because, yes, it does happen over and over again. But anyway, he says, your conflicts, all the difficult things, the problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They're actually yours. They're specifically yours designed specifically by you, by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. That part of you that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks to lead you to yourself. You're not going to go in the right direction unless there's something pricking you in the side telling you, look here, look this way. And, yeah, I personally think that that's such a beautiful quote because it really tells it. It really sums up our human condition, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, collectively as well as individually, collectively as well as individually. You know, the, you know, the prick in the side is, you know, melting polar ice caps. Yeah. Time to wake up, people. What are we doing wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's no uh, one hero who can solve it all. There's no one hero who can solve it, and that's a really interesting point. You know, the, the the hero that's required now is the collective hero. And there's no villain who can be single, uh, singly blamed for it all either. Our human nature is to try to find that villain, isn't it? You know, you know, oh, it's the big bad guys in 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 uh, the petrol companies, and yes, well, of course they've misbehaved uh, in many many ways, but it doesn't really behoove us to spend time witch hunting. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is go within and listen to that call, that pricking in the side and saying, what do I need to do? You know, how do I respond powerfully to a set of circumstances that are way beyond my control? And if enough of us do that, then all of a sudden we're going to have a shift. Yeah. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to to wind up. Actually, we're we're coming up on the hour here. Yeah. And I feel like there's so much more we could speak about. And if you're open, we could do another another interview after some time. Yeah, we could talk about something. We could talk about something else, perhaps. Um, and maybe eventually we'll talk about my book once it's finally done. But uh, you know, that's probably going to be a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did want to ask you, uh, and I think now we're out of time for that, but about, about your work with Dharma and with the Dharma diamond, with the different, it's a, it's a, it's a connected way of mapping and understanding oneself and, and deepening into, uh, good choices. It seems to me that that is a lot about choices isn't it understanding oneself and also acting yeah well that's what the book is about it's about applying the principles of dharma uh, in our lives um and of course one of the principles of dharma and this is where we we can maybe maybe end i think it's good good comment is that when you talk about there's no hero but that we need a collective hero um dharmic wisdom Vedantic wisdom, actually any wisdom tradition out there um, will tell you that everything is connected with everything else. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and that the, our lack of connection with everything, our uh, disassociation, our alienation from ourselves and from nature and each other is really the why we're in the problem that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we need to do is get back to that somehow. Whether we get back to it or whether future generations get back to it after they have to pick up the pieces, that's the only way to live a harmonious life. That's the only way to run a functioning, humane society. So... That's With understanding of interrelationship. 
Um, with just understanding that we're, yeah, we, you know, as, <laughs> as some of the leaders say, yes, we're all in this together. Well, are we? But yes, we are. Mm-hmm. But now we need to individually and collectively take responsibility for that. So it's tricky. It's a little tricky, but that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the way forward. Yeah. Well, I feel we have much more to talk about. Um, I just, well, hook like, me up, and I'll, I'll be I'll be happy to jump in uh, whenever you like, really. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. It's been a really, really good conversation and and really good uh, connecting with you again and hearing what you're up to. I'm definitely looking forward to to reading the book you're writing. Do you have a title yet? Um, title? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's called the Dharma Diamond, recreating the world. I like it. Yes, I'm looking forward to reading that. And if you could, I'll put it in the show notes as well, but if you could mention for people listening where they might find you online, if anyone is interested in doing one-on-one coaching with you, I'd certainly recommend that, uh, how they might contact you and how they might go about learning about your work and connecting with you. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, uh, yes, it's really simple. It's my name, Michael Geary, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-G-E-A-R-Y, all one word, .co.uk. So that's my website. Um, you can contact me through that. Um, and, um, yeah, love working with people. Like I say, everyone I meet is a new novel. Um and in every novel, there's a there's a fairy tale, there's a legend, there's a story to find out, and uh, be happy to help you find out what that is for you if you're ever interested. Yeah, wonderful. All right, well, thank you for speaking, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Till next time. Yeah, till next time. Thanks for listening to the Story Paths podcast. If you liked it, feel free to leave a review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.